Africa, women operate over 40% of small and medium-sized enterprises, but there is a financing gap of $42 billion between male and female entrepreneurs. Given that women reinvest about 90% of their revenue in sector activities that benefit their families and societies, compared to about 40% for men, closing the gender funding gap is a win for everyone. Our guest today is Pauline Colbel. She's the founder and managing partner of She Equity. So Pauline, please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Thank you very much for having me. So my name is Pauline Kober, and I'm actually originally from Rwanda. So my name doesn't really give that. I was born and raised in Rwanda, and I left Rwanda in 1994. Since then, I lived in different countries in Africa, and at some point immigrated to the U.S. legally and then went back to school, started from zero, was really very lucky, um, got Fulbright scholarship that sent me to do my grad study in, in Europe, very specifically in the UK. And then that's actually, I ended up staying in Europe. Right now I'm based in Zurich. And uh, in terms of career-wise, I have worked with different UN organizations, including UNESCO in Paris and the WHO in Geneva, where we are today. And then from there, I joined a private foundation where my task was really to set up a program that was to become the catalyst for innovation and entrepreneurship on the continent. So I did this job for almost eight years. And then after that, I realized I have uh, been coaching, mentoring, finding investors for the innovators I worked with. However, I realized women were really not so much represented in the pool of innovators we supported. So that's how the idea of setting up She Equity came about, which I launched last year in May. Congratulations. What a huge accomplishment. Thank you. You're a leader passionate about innovations, entrepreneurship, and empowerment of youth and women. Your journey started off in Rwanda to the U.S. and different countries in Africa. Give us a little bit more detail because this is, sounds like an incredibly compelling journey and inspiring for specifically young women who see limitations that you have overcome. And it sounds like having to start over potentially multiple times. And while you were a Fulbright scholar, that journey is also not an easy one to get from where you started to where you got to. Yeah, so again, I was born in this beautiful country, Rwanda, but I left running because of the war, right? And uh, I've been like it. So because usually when you tell people you are from Rwanda, they're kind of feeling like, oh my God, is your family okay? How did you do it? Which I understand. But on the other hand, I really was among the people who were lucky because along with this journey that was not easy, I met a lot of people who supported me, like who reopened doors. So whenever there was like a dark side, there was always like positive side. So I learned very quickly to focus on the positive side and also really embrace this of saying that what does not kill you makes you stronger. And also really looking for, uh, you know, any time I can, focusing on the any area where I can see what I can do about my situation other than just letting what had happened, the tragedy really define my future. I started off actually volunteering in the refugee camps in DRC Congo, and this led actually the people who came to with the job to hire me because I was already doing the job because they needed people to take the job. And who do you hire other than someone who's actually already there? And then fast forward when I arrived in the U.S., I arrived in Arizona, in Tucson, Arizona, which became my home. I got a lot of family taking me in. They understood very quickly that my goal was to go back to school. I still needed to sustain myself, of course, but going to school was really one of the reasons I wanted to be in the U.S. So different professors coached me, mentored me, 
already like, you know, showing me possibility rather than what I can't do more, like what I can do. And that's, again, how I ended up doing very well in a school that led me to opportunity that opened up the world of opportunity that I want to pass on down to other women. In essence, the way of paying it forward. As you talk about paying it forward, we are now encountering a situation where we're having potentially a significant influx of refugees from Afghanistan who will be in the same spot that you were 15 years ago? More. I arrived in the U.S. in 2000. So 20 years ago. So what advice do you have both for the refugees who are likely scared? They likely don't speak the language either well or at all. They're separated from their country, their families, their religions, and they have both an opportunity and they've lost a lot. So what do you say to them as they embark on a new life and also to the Americans who may be afraid of them? <laughs> it's a very interesting question. The first things I would say, you hold on, on hope. So I actually learned like um, a while back how hope could be an abbreviation for hold on pain eases. Wow, I've not heard that. Hold on, pain eases. Exactly. So I think everyone has to remember, like in any situation you are in, you have the power to decide how you deal with it. If you decide to dwell on the past, you're not going to move forward. So the Afghan refugees who are making it in the U.S., I would say they're among the lucky ones because we have seen horrible images, people trying to leave or stranded somewhere in the middle of nowhere. So if you make it there, count your blessing. Because you go there because someone somewhere is really kind of rooting for you. Uh -huh. So you can hold on on that vision of someone rooting for you, even if you don't know who they are, because there is a reason why you are there. And also, again, realize, I guess, for me, what I like people to get from my story is that the whole thing about American dream, it's not a myth. I don't know how much is still the reality with all the <laughs> geopolitics that we have. But in my situation, basically, I came with nothing, started from zero. I didn't know anyone. But today, I'm in a situation where I'm making choices, where I sit on a table with the people to see how we can be able to actually bring prosperity to everyone. You know, this is um, a true story, right? Uh -huh. So for anyone who's in any bad situation, I think the only way is to not to lose hope and focus on the future and focusing if, whenever you see something positive, amplify it. Make it big in your mind, mm -hmm. fantasies, like, because then that becomes your guiding star. Uh -huh. And again, realizing that once you are in the U.S., you're going to have people who are going to like you, some people who are not going to like you, like everywhere. It's not just a U.S. thing. You know? Right. Well, and refugees are going everywhere. I realized as you were speaking that I misstated as if they're only going to the U.S., yeah. but they are fortunate to be able to leave. And they are getting access to many different countries. And it's hard. It's hard, especially like the most of Afghan refugees that are ending up in the U.S. are probably not the poor people. Yeah. So they packed maybe or they whatever they packed, they couldn't take it because of how it ended yeah. up happening very fast. But those are people who probably occupying very good position. They could be doing the same work you're doing mm -hmm. in and then suddenly they arrive. And one thing that really like kills you when you become a refugee that I hope everyone who wants to help refugees or everyone who sees refugees not human or being a problem to realize like usually when you become a refugee, you become a number. So basically your name, your dreams, everything, no one cares about them, right? But you have the power to not lose that. 
So people might call your number, you might show up, but you have your name. So you have to find a way to see what you can hold on and then use it as really a tool to move you forward because, again, it's not going to be easy, you know, moving from your job to another job. But you can start and make it if you don't give up. Yeah, I'm just thinking physicians and highly educated people don't get to just get that same job. Yeah, you need to go back or either take a test. My first job in the U.S., I ended up working with refugees myself and supporting refugees from like former Soviet Union, the Somali Bantu group, uh, the Lost Boy of Sudan. And it was interesting to see also the difference where the refugees were coming from, like the one who were coming from like a refugee camp who have been there for a long time, like the Lost Boys of Sudan. Their expectations were not very high. They just wanted to have a safe place, be able to go back to school. So they didn't have a reference, like I'm a doctor. Or, you know. mm-hmm. So in a sense, it was easier for them actually to adjust. But uh, the one who were coming from a Soviet Union, being doctors, and then you tell them, okay, your first job might be to clean hotels or do something in restaurants. It was very hard for them. But again, at the end, it's all about looking at the short-term versus long-term view. The short-term, you're safe. You have your two feet, you have your brain. Long term, you are in a country that could, you know, open up opportunity for you. So it's up to you to decide what you do with it. And your choices are very clear. Thank you for the voice of hope. Now speak to the Americans who are afraid that refugees are going to fill in the blank, overtake us, change our culture, in some way do harm to their communities. I think human nature somehow work on emotions. And one of the strong emotions is a fear. Uh-huh. So people are afraid of unknown. And then there's an amplifying factor that makes people even know before what they don't know. So they mm-hmm. get afraid before they even see it. And talking about, you know, all the the hype around social media and things like that, that, you know, people put there with a different agenda. I'm not an expert on the topic. I'm talking about what worked for me, right? Well, and that you worked with other refugees coming over. Exactly. So you've seen thousands of precious human souls trying to find safety. Yeah. So what worked for me and what worked for the successful refugees I have worked with is, again, realizing, okay, you come in someone's house. If anything, you can try to help them understand that you're not coming in to take and everything. And so this is on you. On the other side is also realizing that those who are afraid might not be afraid because they don't really know. So finding a way to educate without being like a, a teacher or patronizing by saying, okay, one of the myths is that refugees come and take jobs, which is actually not true in a U.S. setting because most of the jobs that refugees take when they just arrive, most Americans don't want those, right? The other myth is that refugees come and then they take food stamp and they become dependent. Actually, that's also not true in general, because every refugee I know, they're coming in for a better life. No one is coming to stay on food stamp. <laughs> they might need food the first day, the second day, until they figure out how to do, but everyone wants to have back their life, their dream life. The refugees spend, because when you arrive with nothing. So the first paycheck, you're buying TV, you're buying, paying shoes, your rent, clothes. shoes, clothes. And then you want to buy, you know, an apartment. Like I bought a condo in my hometown. Almost all immigrants I know have bought houses. 
you buy a car, because again, I'm talking about the context of Tucson, Arizona, so public transportation is not very good. So you can't do much with the mm -hmm. buses. So at the end, basically, we're bringing different cultures that maybe are unknown. On the other hand, from an economical perspective, actually, immigrants contribute. You need everything to start from zero. And then in terms of the power of diversity, I can tell you, for example, again, my hometown, Tucson, Arizona, at the end, we build a system in a way that people were welcoming refugees because they realized what they were bringing in, the different food, different music, the different experiences. And I don't know how much we managed to change those who didn't like it, but I feel like at the end of the day, we never saw people complaining. And I think so. I would again go back and say, okay, you start with realizing why people are reacting the way they write. It's because of fear and unknown. So anything you can do to help them realize that you're not a bad person and also the system that is supporting refugees because you're coming illegally into the system that's very well organized, by the way, in the U.S. because I know it very well. <laughs> so making sure that there's a not side-by-side -side community, but integration. Like one of my reason I feel I've been successful, I'm still working on it, <laughs> is uh, because I managed to integrate. And I integrated not just because I tried hard or, you know, I did my best, but also the community saw the value that I could bring that I wasn't someone coming to take, but I was also adding. And, and we need to be actually highlighting this kind of story of many refugees who came in and contribute to America not the, the old story that we know about people coming in, the Statue of Liberty, mm -hmm. like now, because we have a lot of stories. Maybe in the future you can interview other people <laughs> telling the same story and see whether people pay attention. You know, I'm actually working with a hotel client and their senior vice president of operations is a refugee, and I want to say from Sudan, who has a brilliant story. One of the people I'm presenting with here at the conference is a refugee from Syria. They have come to the U.S., they've had opportunities, and they have contributed mightily. So it is, I think, important to tell that part of the story, one, that there is hope for people who, at their most vulnerable points, have opportunities. And for our listeners who may just not know what to expect, your point about the community welcoming and this same hotel client is creating a program to hire refugees to do work in their hotels because they have a workforce shortage. It's a brilliant opportunity of path to work and creating safety and basics for these, again, precious families who just want the same thing we all want. Respectable work, safe conditions for our families, opportunities. So I want to turn a bit, and I realize this wasn't the objective, but as we're talking about hope, it is not only refugees, but we have significant issues with anxiety and depression for people across the spectrum. Yours is a story of hope that in your worst moments, you have found ways to stay positive and constructive. And I imagine you had some incredibly difficult moments along the path. What would you say to the teenager who doesn't see a path forward in their lives or the young mom who's trying to support children and go to a job without childcare? The many people who are just struggling right now, and especially with she equity, the focus on our young women. 
the first things I will say is to, to acknowledge again that we go through different phases and find, I guess if you're depressed, it's hard to think that this is a phase because you're deep inside. Mm-hmm. And here maybe I'll address on the people again around the person who's depressed because once you depress, you know, it's not just physical, it's also chemical. Chemicals. So you need help, right? Uh-huh. So one, you need to accept help. The second is to realize this is a phase in your life. And I think in general, because maybe it might not be for everyone, I think in general, everyone might have had a moment in their life that's beautiful. You know, being able to revisit. I call those like, I think they call these uh, moral boosters. You know, like, what is it that if it was to happen again, would make you smile? Mm-hmm. Because again, finding a way to rekindle hope, you know, I keep going back to hope, is the only way you can address your current situation and be able also to put together a strategy for how you get out of it. But you need to be able to acknowledge where you are right now, not accept it in the sense like hey, it's done, I can't do anything about it, but realize this is the fact, now I have to move on. I remember I was talking to a friend of mine at some point and she was telling me about some of the issues she was going through and she's saying, you know, Pauline, I feel like I'm almost depressed. And I told her, look, my friend, depression is not an option if you want to get out of it. Uh-huh. But she was not depressed, right? But uh, she was feeling like she was a bit going, you know, deeper into that road. And and the reason I said that, again, if you can manage to not get deeper, then you have also a chance of getting out of it and then making uh, this as a reference of how you can move forward and never go back. For the young people... One thing that has helped me as well is, is looking up for role models, like trying to see people who might have similar stories. You know, I, I looked up your story. It's amazing, but I can't necessarily relate because we didn't grow up in the same situation. Maybe we didn't go through the same thing. But imagine there might be someone like you who's seated in your position who might have gone through some other things as well. Like being able to know that they made it and then they're thriving. It also helps you because it's hard to become what you don't know and what you have never mm-hmm. seen. So finding role models, and I think again in terms, I keep going back to the community around you, finding example for how other people have done it, knowing that other people are not you, but they might shed light that these things happen and the difference is how do you deal with it. And the future is there and you can choose to shape it or just accept the way it is. And again, I, I know this is too much for a younger person. That's why for younger people are saying, you know, find a mentor, a role model that you look up to whenever you feel like something are not are going uh, in direction that you don't really like. And your story is the story of that. So people who, who may never meet you can still look to you as a role model. I hope so. That's why I do what I do, because as I said before, I wanted to pay it forward because the people who open the door and the windows and everything else, I can never be able to pay them back. But I remember when my professor at the University of Arizona, when I went on to win many awards, they were very proud. And I was proud because I could give them something where they can see that their efforts were not lost. And now what I'm setting up, many people that I have worked with, some of them now are on my board. So they're seeing that whatever seed they saw was not lost. So now let's shift to she equity. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about how do you identify who to fund? 
How did this come about? Basically, this came about based on the fact that I spent the last 10 years working with, you know, innovators and entrepreneurs across the continent of Africa. And I, at some point, I realized we were doing an amazing job. However, we have not really managed to include women so that we can actually put processes in place that allows women also to make it to the finishing line. And I know some of the arguments that people say, okay, no, you can't do, you know, special treatment for women. They should compete equally. But you and I know it's not that. It's about, you know, the, the level paving field and making sure that, you know, whereas some people are starting going to really pave the road, some other people are starting going to hit the road. That's unpaved. That is unpaved. That are living in a exactly. house that is dirt floor. Exactly. That don't have electricity. They're still cooking on a wood stove. Exactly. So I, I saw an image that I like to use in my presentation now. It's, uh, it's showing like how when it, it comes to African women or brown looking women, it's not just about the glass ceiling, because when we talk about inequality, we always talk about glass ceiling. It's about the sticky floor. Interesting. They can't really move because there's so many things holding them back. So what I, I put together, she equities to say, okay, I have seen during the last 10 years working in this space on the continent, many women creating solutions that can solve many problems that we talk about when we're talking about sustainable development goals. However, the existing systems, um, whether it's a nonprofit organization, usually we help people who don't have anything, like what you mentioned, people who are living in the, in the house, mud, nothing, which is good. When it comes to Africa, you have also the continent is endowed by many mineral, petrol, everything mm -hmm. you can imagine you find it in Africa. Exactly. So Africa is the richest continent, which happens to have many poor people. Why? You know, sometimes people say, when they talk about Africa, they say Africa is a poor continent. It's not true. Africa is a rich continent with many poor people. And the reason for me, I think, that this is the fact, this is the reality, is because we're not empowering the local problem solver to solve the problem so they can actually be a part of bringing about the solution that they can scale and tackle every issue you can imagine. We still say, okay, there's a problem in Rwanda, let's import a solution. What about funding, investing in the local entrepreneur, even better if it's a woman, because as a woman, we tend to create solutions that are addressing really problems. And when we design a solution, we make sure that it works for everyone. When it's done by the other side, it usually it might work for the people who design it. So there's a lot of reason why investing in women makes sense, right? And may, investing in women entrepreneurs, they're not asking for help. They're just asking access to opportunities. And I feel like this narrative is missing when it comes to Africa. It's always about aid or about other issues I don't even want to discuss here. Mm -hmm. But if we were to shift the discussion to say, okay, let's look at this younger population, the women who are driving the business. I think you mentioned 40% of SMEs and, and many other things. Just to economically empower them. And the key for me, key word is economically empower them. Because we talk about empowerment in general, but it's always does not come with money. And I think the moment you are economically empowered, you can make decisions that are good for you, for your family. Your girls will be inspired because now mom is a part of people who decided, am I going to send her to school? 
the school, no, the school, am I going to pay a tutor? So the mother would be involved in that discussion because also the money belongs to her and she made it. And I think that's how we transform societies, not just by handout, but really economic empowerment. So what she equity does basically to say, okay, we know we have seen many women creating a solution and most of them are stunted just because they can't access the capital they need. And one of the reasons they're not accessing the capital, it's linked to many issues, but one of them is affinity bias, which links to people right now who actually allocate capital and not women. So they tend to invest in the people who look like them, who speak like them. So therefore, if you go to pitch and you're a woman to this other group that can't really relate to your story, even though your business might be comparing, they might think the way you pitch is not good enough, therefore you don't get the money. So this is going with she equity because we're only focusing on women. And the second is tied to this problem is also we don't have many female fund managers who basically making decision or who do we give money. And this problem is still there as well because as a female fund managers, you need to raise money. And when you're raising money, you're probably the first time fund managers, there is a lot of things around the track record. So the, the whole discussions, the whole, all the issues are remains. And what we're doing that shape to say, okay, we're not going to let those issues be the talk of the day. But we want to be showing example of how it can be done, hoping that the leaders, the true leaders, will join us and really start showing that we can achieve the SDGs very fast in an inclusive way where everyone wins. In the financing, is it more microfinancing? What I've read and the women I've talked to are often creating smaller businesses, community-based, that really help the entire community meet local basic needs. Is that inaccurate? What you describe is accurate. However, what we're doing is she equity, as the words say, it's about equity. So we are doing a, like a venture capital investment. So we basically making sure that uh, women can build business that can grow and scale. Whereas I, I respect what microfinance has done. I think they have achieved a lot. One area where I think they have not really done a lot. It's really promoting business that can grow and scale where you can actually go from being micro to macro, you know? So, so there's this mentality where, so microfinance keep women on micro, you know? And I think as long as you're micro, you have no voice. So let's face it, you're going to survive. But I think as women, we should not just be about surviving, especially because we have a talent, we know how to do it. We're just asking for tools. And so she equity is really about backing businesses that can grow, scale in Africa, but also globally. I give you an example of one company we backed. This is a company in Nigeria called Medzaf. It's in a healthcare. They have built a platform that ensure the safety of a medication end to end from the manufacturing to actually distribution on the ground. And this business basically is addressing one of the key challenges in Africa where about 40% of medication sold on African market is either substandard or fake. Really? That's a huge percentage. Exactly. So this company is now servicing about 200 clinic, hospital, and pharmacy in Nigeria, making a revenue that is growing every, every month now, especially with the new round they have raised. 
and the intention to be able to scale to Ghana, other countries in Africa, and eventually also bring the solution to other markets because this problem is not just an African problem. It's a problem we find in many emerging markets and to some extent also developed market because no one looked for, the, you know, if you don't pay attention, you don't really know. So this is the kind of business. It's a tech-powered company that is addressing real issues in healthcare. So they were involved in APP, for example, distribution, assuring that all the PP material coming to Nigeria are safe for people. So this is the kind of business we are backing. Another fast for another example of business we're backing is uh, a circular economy business model that is uh, called Ecodudu. They're based in Kenya. So what they do, basically, they produce insect protein and at the same time is also produce organic fertilizer. And they do this by basically taking uh, organic waste and also African black fly soldiers. And then they, through this incubation process, they produce uh, maggots that then are used as a feed for livestock. So this is, again, everyone talking about circular economy, waste management, the food of the future. This company is ready to raise the next round and be able to actually grow venture scale in the other markets. I just want to, don't want to give too many examples, but those are examples. They, they started small, but they're growing. And that's what we're promoting as she equity. Where does the money come from? So the money comes from investors. So again, because of the issue of being the first-time fund manager, being a woman, you know, all the issues we know like in terms of the, the sticky floor, right? So we also experienced that. So what I did was I started it with my own saving, and then I convinced a few friends later on after I have invested in three companies, and I showed them example of the kind of business we're investing in. I showed them the pipeline, showed them like this is, could be really a bigger business that drive profit but also impact like uh, from like social environment impact and they loved it so two other women joined me and now we have a few other women joining and eventually i'm hoping also many will join so we started with uh again taking like entrepreneurial mindset like a lean startup approach start setting up an, a special purpose vehicle that set up in mauritius with ability to invest across africa which has allowed us now to invest in seven companies in six countries already. And so the idea is we reach 15 companies. And once we have this 15 company into our portfolio, then we will roll over into a proper structure, official VC fund, and we're targeting 50 million. So even ourselves, we're thinking about the growth. So we're having a phase approach because the reality is you can't start from zero to want to raise 50 million. It's impossible. If you look like me and you don't have uh, 20 years experience in the VC world, and because I know people want to make money, and right now a lot of people also want to have an impact, I'm convinced the moment I can show them with example, a skin in a game, that this is what we, had, we have achieved with this, here's our pipeline, here's our processes, I should be able to raise the 50 million. So hopefully some of our listeners will consider contributing. How would they find you? So they can find us on, on the website, She Equity, so S-H-E-Q-U-I-T-Y. Or they can find me on LinkedIn, Pauline Kerber. Uh, I'm hoping on a, on a dead show you will put us my contact information. Absolutely. The thing is for me, so I want people to come and invest in She Equity or the like of She Equity. But I also want people to pay attention to this kind of stories where 
we can make money when we are so contributing to people on the planet. And there are many probably other ways to do it, but I think betting on women. And when it comes to Africa, we all talk about poverty in Africa and women are at the key to actually really ending poverty in Africa. And women entrepreneurs, innovators are at the center. So if we don't include them, if we don't invest in them, we might have to redefine again SDGs post-2030, which we did with the MDG, right? So we don't want to do the same. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Millennium, Millennium Development Goals came before the SDGs. They were not achieved. And then the leaders will convene and say, okay, now we call it SDGs and now we push the deadline. We don't want to push a deadline and come up with new name. Hopefully, once we achieve these goals, we look at the next round. For people curious about how a fund works, if I were a woman in Africa who wanted to get funding, how would the process work? I'm guessing many people aren't familiar with this. So if you were looking for funding, different way to do it, like in terms of the, the startups, mm -hmm. or okay, in terms of the startups, some of them participate in what we call like incubators, accelerators, which organize pitch sessions and they invite investors like us and different investors to listen in. And then if investors are interested, they get in touch. Some people also just send a pitch deck uh, via LinkedIn, via email, which usually this is not really the best way because people want to trace where things came from. Or what we have done as well, which I didn't mention, maybe I can mention it quickly. So we set up our own accelerator as well called SHIBA, She Equity Business Accelerator. And uh, SHIBA is basically also allowing us to identify a pool of women who have potential to build successful business and scalable businesses. But the existing structure they have, the team, everything is not good or investment ready. So basically, Shiba allows us to de-risk, restructure, look at all aspects of the business from like investor mindset, whereby at the end, so it's a 16 weeks structural program, masterclass, market tests, where you can see if you need to pivot or not. So this basically becomes like our pipeline where we can bring in more women, Eventually, more than the number we can invest in ourselves. And then the idea is to bring other investors to come in and invest with us or invest in other companies. Because at the end, when you talk to investors here in Europe, in the US, in North America, Asia, they always talk about there is no pipeline. We're not investing in women because we can't find them, right? So we want to actually be able to say, here they are, here they are. Because the pipeline excuse has to stop. And to stop this, someone has to be also really working on acknowledging some of the issues on the table, which to say, okay, most of the business run by women might be not well structured, might not be ready for investment. And by the way, the reason is the case, because again, those women are not getting much support. It's not like they don't want to have a structured businesses. It's just the ecosystem is not there yet to support them in the same way we support entrepreneurs in the Silicon Valley here in Switzerland or any other places in the developed world. So we're trying to do both to say, okay, let's look at the pipeline while at the same time separating the two because we know investors want to deal with investment, but we know also investors want to get a pipeline. So we have structured two anger where, you know, we can build this pipeline and that's where, for example, women who are looking for investment or thinking about this is like a room for them to come in. 
because this becomes a pipeline that ends with investment and growth and, and scale. I love the idea that you're creating a pipeline where you invest, but also where others come in and invest. So you're building the ecosystem. Exactly. So that's actually how what we say. We say we're building a, an ecosystem for investment for women so we can unlock through their potential. Is the business accelerator in a physical place or is it accessible online for people in different countries? So right now, because of COVID, <laughs> We're running it online. The team running it is based in Ghana. Okay. So we decided to start initially focusing on West Africa because also it's important to have boots on the ground and and be able to say, okay, whenever markets open, we can visit, we can go and coach on the ground. We also were, you know, aware of the fact that right now, for those who are not very familiar with the, you know, entrepreneurship innovation ecosystem on African continent, the English-speaking countries are way leading, right? So okay. if you look at a country attracting investment, they are Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, and Egypt. So almost every non-African investor who wants to invest in Africa, those are the countries they look at because they think they know because of the track record of attracting investment, also having some unicorn that came from mm -hmm. those countries. So the, the Francophone countries, you have, you know, potential, but a lot of people are not really looking at those markets because, again, there's a, the ecosystem doesn't exist. Okay. So part of what we want to do, which is, again, our mission of unlocking the potential, is also to focus on a few countries in the Francophone West Africa, including Sahel, because we know, like, women on the ground are creating a solution, but no one is really coming in those markets. Forget it, men or women, no one is going there. Mm -hmm. So we want to lead from that perspective. So where is Rwanda in the pipeline, since that's the country of your birth? So Rwanda, uh, Rwanda actually is doing well in many, many ways. But when I set up She Equity, I really wanted to make it Pan-African. And I chose to focus on Sub-Saharan Africa. And I think if you know Rwanda, I don't know if you've been to Rwanda, it's a small country, mm. a landlord country. So when we invest in Rwanda, we want to make sure that the people investing also, they're creating solution not just for Rwanda. Because if they're creating a solution for just Rwanda, they're not going to be scalable. So, so that's also the mindset saying, okay, doesn't matter where you're based, Rwanda, Switzerland, Mauritius, whatever small countries, Ireland, your mindset should be like you have seen a problem maybe locally, and you have zoomed out to realize, okay, how many people are affected by this problem? How can I take it to next door, the region? And how can I take it outside of Africa? You know, So that's the journey also that we, we want to be a part of it. When we say we, we provide smart investment, by the way, what we mean by that is we're not just bringing cash. Because we know cash is not the only thing that women need to actually to be able to play equally at the marketplace. So they need technical support, and that's what we're providing through Shiba, pre-investment, but also post-investment, and also providing access to high-value networks. You know, for example, the women we invest in or the women through Shiba, we, we try to find mentors for them. That's something, by the way, the listeners will want to mentor business women in Africa. So this costs only your time, but I can guarantee you be inspired. We take for granted networking effect. I am here and whatever I have done, it has been always like a network result, right? But many women in Africa, they don't have the same opportunity to say, okay, I know someone in the U.S. and Switzerland, like 
if you ask me, like, if you tell me to find someone in many countries globally, I think I would be able to find. But the way I would find it is not because of my own notebook. Because I know people who know people who know people, mm-hmm. right? So what we want to do for She Equity is like, how can we also bring this network to those entrepreneurs? So when they create innovation from Nigeria, from Rwanda, from anywhere, Kenya, and uh, they need to take it to, I don't know, Kansas City. So we can say, okay, hey, actually we know International Leadership Association of made someone. Maybe we can send an email. Mm-hmm. And you never know things happen. Yeah, That's brilliant. I love the idea of technical support, networking support, mentoring support, and cash. Especially if I'm putting money into a fund, I want to know that the people being funded have the support to succeed. Yeah, it's a part of the risk mitigation. And so the reason why a lot of people also shy away from investing in Africa, forget about just women, is because they think there are too many risks. The perception about Africa is uh, risk, risk, risk. Because again, of the unknown, right? Mm-hmm. So what we put in the place is also because we know the ecosystem, we know the cash alone is not enough. Of course, if you are investor saying, okay, I want to come in alone, invest alone, but I'm just going to do cash, most likely you might be disappointed. And maybe those are the story that you will tell and then you make other people not come, but it's not about investing in Africa. It's how you invest in Africa. Anytime you do anywhere, you go anywhere anyway, it's always good to work with the locals people who understand the culture, who people who understand how do you put strategy in place to really weight the, the reward versus risk. That's what we do here in Switzerland. That's what we do in the U.S. Everywhere there are risks, but we know how to deal with the risk. We trust the systems. And that's what we're really trying to do in Africa because, again, Africa is not just the next frontier. It is. This is like a fast-growing youthful population, 1.3 billion people predicted to double by 2050. When the rest of the world is thinking it's worried about aging, Africa's worried about youth, you know, so the future job, everything's going to be in Africa. So either you come in because you feel, okay, I want to contribute towards accelerating SDG, whatever speaks to you, or you say, okay, this is actually where my business clients with the base. So if you come in area, you win. Either way, you win. Either way, you win. I love that because we we think in the U.S. of China as an emerging market and India as an emerging market. I haven't heard as many people talk about the continent of Africa being an emerging market and potentially one of the hottest emerging markets. So because those words are defined, like people define how do you qualify for being an emerging market. So you have South Africa being a part of the group of the BRICS, right? But what I'm talking about is about not just now, it's about tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. It's about opportunity on the table. You can't argue about, you know, against the facts. More than 75% of Africans are under the age of 30. And so as other countries' populations are declining. Exactly. This is what well, you said, doubling by 2050. Yeah. That's 30 years. Yeah. And Africa now have decided to set up something almost like a European Union economic zone where free trade you know, agreement where now you can actually take your product from South Africa to Egypt the same way you move from France to Germany, right? Is that the whole continent? That's the whole continent, yeah. So they have signed off now, of course, at the end, it's a question of implementation, how it's going to work, but it's, it takes steps, right? This is a very big step. And what this should mean for anyone interested in doing business in Africa is now, you know, again, if you choose Rwanda, 
as your landing place to set up because of the infrastructure, the legal system, it's done fast, it's safe. Uh You're not just going to be looking at Rwanda as your market. Rwanda becomes your base. But being in Rwanda, you access the 1.3 billion customers. And 2.6 billion in 30 years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And growing. And again, because also the poverty on the ground, it means like uh, people need to buy, you know, the more you economically you do well, the more you need to purchase stuff. So the consumer are in Africa. They're not going to be in the U.S. and in Europe or Asia, you know. So you talk about China, India. China is doing a lot of business in Africa. I don't want to go into that discussion, but the key is like everyone is, is basically right now in Africa, people who basically see the future or interest to be a part of the, the future. And unfortunately, again, the reason we I set up Shea Equity and the reason I keep talking about innovators, entrepreneurs, this group doesn't necessarily get the attention it needs because assumably the risk associated with that. And what I have to say is like the people like me, an organization like Shea Equity and many others that are basically, uh, you know, your launching part. If you wanted to say, okay, I want to say it's the opportunity in Africa, I even I want to learn. We're happy to have a conversation because part of my goal as a way of giving back is also being able to really share what I know about Africa. Going back to what I said, sometimes people don't take actions. Either they're afraid or they don't know, right? So I am available to even have a call with the people to just share and answer any fearful or inspiring story they want to hear. Because I think one has to start by educating or knowing. And again, at the end of the day, if you want to be a part of a, a successful story and also make money, business with a purpose, investing in women, you can't go wrong. We can't, we're on. I love that. So as we wrap up, it's been an interesting conversation ranging from your personal story and how that helped you land with She Equity, that leaving as a refugee, working in a refugee camp as a volunteer, getting hired, moving to Tucson, going through college, being supported by the community and your professors, and now you're paying it forward by creating She Equity and giving back to women specifically on the continent of Africa, by creating a global fund, by creating a business accelerator, and by building an ecosystem that really does help address both the sticky floor and the glass ceiling of elevating women who are the ones who are going to invest, spend 90% of their income in their communities and largely in support of their families. And educating the future generation. You know, basically, if you invest in a woman, as the statistics keep repeating, it's almost like you're investing in 50% of the population that raised the remaining 50%. So pretty much like you're investing in everyone. And then if you invest in entrepreneur and women entrepreneurs, then they're bringing you that entrepreneurship level innovative level that creates solution that can really solve many problems. And who usually face those problems? Women. Women and their children. So you're interested about girls. Inspiration role model is the best way to inspire girls. And who inspires you most? Usually your mom, right? So we need to start with, you know, women economically empower them. I keep emphasizing <laughs> economically because I think the whole talk about empowerment in general is limiting. We really need to be talking about how do we build equity for women? Because with equity, then you have a say, you have a power to decide 
And women I know, maybe I'm lucky to only know this kind of women, they all talk about want to be transforming society where it's not about them, it's about their society. So whatever tool they get, they want to multiply. Because as someone said, this is not me, I'm quoting someone like women are multiplier. So they give you kids, you give them money, they give you multiple return. It's just about time that we realize, like, it's also for our own benefit and humanity to really back women. Because the whole discussion about climate change, by the way, I know we're wrapping up. There are quite enough research showing how if we were to economically empower women, you know, most of the issue we're discussing also would be addressed just by empowering women. SDG 5 touches on everything you can imagine or other issues we're discussing we're trying to solve. For our listeners who don't know SDG 5, what is it? Gender equality. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because we have a 17 sustainable development goal. Mm -hmm. And uh, I argue, not alone with many other people, that if you were to empower women, make sure there's a gender equality, you can actually be able to address many other issues around, you know, health care, education, partnership, environment, like you name it. Those are the things that are affecting women and women are trying to solve those issues, but not, they're not included and they're not empowered. So if you were to economically empower them, so they can actually be the one also deciding where they invest, what kind of business they back, are the business with the purpose, or just business with the, focusing on the profit. So I know women will always back business with the, you know profit, people, and planet. And that's, I think... It makes sense, at least in my world. <laughs> so for our listeners, this is absolutely an invitation to connect with Pauline. We'll have her LinkedIn information in the blog and in the newsletter, contact information, more information about She Equity. And her invitation to all of you is certainly contribute economically to the investment fund where you get a return. Also contribute your wisdom as a mentor that for many people who aren't able to contribute money, they can contribute inspiration and wisdom and experience. These women entrepreneurs need all of it. And so we do invite you to connect and contribute and experience the richness of helping young women in Africa scale their businesses and thrive. So, Pauline, as we close, will you remind us what hope means to you? Yeah, hope means hold on, pain eases. And, and I want to use this time to also thank you, Maureen, and also thank everyone who has really supported me to get here. So where I can be able to share my story, hoping that inspires other people to look at refugees as an asset, not an, a problem. Thank you. Thank you. So a potential revision for this conversation is hold on, promote entrepreneurship. Sounds good. 